Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. I'm John Fusco. It's September 7th, 2017, and on this week's show, we go charging into fall festival season, share some positive financial news for indies against the backdrop of the summer blockbuster fail, and in Ask No Film School, answer a pressing question about lens adapters. And as always, we bring news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, weekly words of wisdom, and indie film releases. everybody, welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Our first very big piece of very personal news. It's one of the saddest announcements I've ever had to make on the show. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you may have guessed it from that very sweet whimper. Uh, this is the last Indie Film Weekly uh, where we will be sharing the mics with Miss Emily Booter. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry to corroborate that, that I actually am leaving, and I'm really sad about it. <laughs> Emily has done so many amazing things, as you all know, in her last year plus at No Film School, and now she's moving on, and so this episode will surely be our best ever, because it's so full of love. It's not going to top the Halloween episode, though. Oh, yeah, that's true. Never <laughs> forget that one. That one never dies. She'll be back for the Halloween. I'll be episode. a guest ap- a guest uh, podcaster you on can, the Halloween. Episode. You Please can make do. all the special effects noises. Ooh, in person! That. Yeah, the only special effects noises in this episode will be the sound of my tears falling into my beer, and also Emily's sick snot voice because she's <laughs> not only phlegm. is it my last episode, but I'm also majorly sick. So please forgive me for what, for which part of that, <laughs> for being sick or leaving us. Um, I don't expect you to forgive me for a while for leaving, <laughs> so you can take your time. I'll work for your forgiveness. That sounds good. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> a box of macarons would be a great start. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to jump into news, to more exciting news now. And here we are. We're done wearing white and ready to jump into the fall festival season like a great big pile of crunchy leaves. I wrote that line for you, Emily. (laughs) Yes! Practical effects. Anyway, uh, there's lots to say about it, but I will start with the last gasp of Summer Festival, Beautiful Venice, which I teed up for you last week. We'll also get into Telluride and TIFF. Some call this the holy trifecta of film festivals, and if you play at all three, there's a pretty good chance there's an Oscar nomination in your future. This year, in the typical he said, she said of these conversations, it was noted that there was only one film in competition out of 21 at Venice that was directed by a woman, Vivian Chu's Angels Wear White. And in an almost shockingly obtuse interview with festival director Alberto Barbera over at The Hollywood Reporter, he basically said, it's not our fault. We don't produce the films. We only program them. Like, could there be a lamer excuse? I wish I said it in an Italian accent, though. It would have sounded better. Anyway, actress Annette Benning served as the first female president of the competition jury in a decade, and she acknowledged the apparent sexism in the lineup and the industry, sort of, but told The Hollywood Reporter, quote, The more that we, as women, can make films that speak to everyone, we can be regarded as filmmakers. Um, sorry, Annette. That just don't cut the mustard on this female filmmaker's hot dog. (laughs) Anyway, believe it or not, Venice still goes on till the 9th of the month, so we'll have to wait till we're already into TIFF to find out who won its prestigious awards. Things were actually a a bit more 
um, promising in terms of numbers of female directors at Telluride, which had one-third female-directed films. Uh, should be half, of course, but one-third is a pretty good ratio when it comes down to it. It's a down-to-earth film festival, and it often has the best Oscar track record of them all. It just wrapped up its 44th year in the mountains in Colorado, and it screened some of the highest-quality films on the festival circuit yet. A decade ago, Telluride premiered the then-unknown Slumdog Millionaire, and the festival went on to either world or U.S. premiere eight of the past nine Oscar Best Picture winners, including both Moonlight and the fake winner last year, La La Land. (laughs) This year looks to prove no different. There are no red carpets, not a single jury member, and minimal Hollywood pretensions at this festival, which boasts a high school gym, an ice skating rink, and the town's Masonic Hall as some of the movie theater venues. Standouts this year were Greta Gerwig's semi-autobiographical coming-of-age dramedy, Lady Bird, starring Sorsha Ronan. Gary Oldman gave a stunning performance as Winston Churchill in The Darkest Hour, which already has critics promulgating a Best Actor win for his nuanced performance, despite three hours' worth of daily makeup and prosthetics. Angelina Jolie's Netflix film, First They Killed My Father, about the horrific violence from the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia in the 70s, drew a standing ovation at Telluride. Natalie Portman produced documentary Eating Animals, based on Jonathan Safran Foer's book, also garnered hype, along with Ai Weiwei's Human Flow, about the global refugee crisis, and Scott Cooper's brutal Western Hostiles, starring Christian Bale as an army captain, who reluctantly agrees to escort an ailing Native American to his tribal home. Taxi driver writer Paul Schrader even showed up with his best movie in two decades, called First Reformed, and it's an eco-thriller starring Ethan Hawke. And that just tell you rides us right into TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, which opens tonight with a gala world premiere presentation of Borg McEnroe, which tells the story of the epic rivalry between Swedish tennis legend Bjorn Borg, played by Sverre Gudmundsson. Guys, I really have a hard time with these Northern European names, so excuse me for butchering them. Uh, and his greatest adversary, the brash American John McEnroe, played by Shia LaBeouf, which should be a really interesting casting choice. This rivalry came to a head during the 1980 Wimbledon Championships. And the film's director, Janice Metz, is a documentarian known for the war doc Armadillo, which won the Critics Week Grand Prize at Cannes. So it should be interesting to see how he translates that documentary experience into fictionalizing a real-life event. By way of background, TIFF is the biggest film festival in North America, with 340 films being shown this year, as opposed to the around 200 showcased annually at Sundance. This year, there are 256 features and 84 shorts, representing 71 countries. Whew! Here's a fun fact. That makes up, guess how many minutes of film? How many minutes of film are in 256 features and 84 shorts? 256 times 90, give or take. Uh, can, uh, let me get this can, one. I think it's, I think it's, it's 30. I think it's 27,438 minutes. God, John, you really are a math whiz. I know. It's like, it's unbelievable. I should never do another budget around here. <laughs> anyway, as our resident genius, John Fusco, so aptly predicted, that makes up 27,438 minutes of film shown at TIFF this year. And of course, we as filmmakers always want to know, what are the odds? So this year, there were 7,299 submissions. You do the math. Just kidding. I did the math because even <laughs> though I hate math, I love you. Hold on, hold on. I'd say there's a one in twenty-one chance of getting your film into TIFF if I did the math correctly. Just in those, 
Fast wow, he's seconds. like, you know, I feel like I can see pie in his eyeballs. <laughs> I see pie everywhere I look. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, again, according to John, who can apparently read as well as he can do math, <laughs> you had a 1 in 21 chance of getting your film into TIFF if you submitted. And there are so, so many strong films in the lineup that it's really impossible to choose one. Um, but if you guys could highlight one for the show... Uh, among the the titles you've read about so far, what would it be? Uh, I would highlight three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is Martin McDonough's newest movie. Uh, Martin McDonough is one of my favorite playwrights of all time, uh, contemporary playwrights, and he's also made some crazy good films. I think In Bruges is honestly one of my favorite movies. I never, I've never gotten tired of that movie. Mm. Um, and Seven Psychopaths was decent, but it still like showed his flair for crazy dark comedy, dark Irish violent comedy. And I really like it. And it's sort of like a unique voice that we don't get to hear very often. He has a brother too. I forget his name, but he's also a McDonough and he made Cavalry. Those two have this, uh, Irish action, dark comedy genre on lock. And this movie uh, stars Frances McDormand as... Love her. Yeah. She is playing a kind of crazy town lady. Oh, okay. I know that Mm -hmm. (laughs) one. Who, uh, after months have passed without a culprit in her daughter's murder case, she decides to paint three signs leading into her town with a controversial message directed at the town's revered chief of police. When a second-in-command, an immature mother's boy with a penchant for violence, that's a very McDonough character right there, gets involved, the battle is only exasperated. And it also stars Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, and Peter Dinklage. So, I mean, some of my favorite actors, one of my favorite play- playwrights and film directors. I'm really excited to see this one. Wait, the battle is exasperated or it's exacerbated? Exacerbated. Exacerhum. <laughs> Masturbating. Exacerhum. It's one of those. I'll let you decide, Got dear it. listeners. Say the name of the film again. It's a hard one to remember. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. So easy to remember if you live in Ebbing, Missouri. <laughs> Otherwise, just think about that movie with the science in the title. and that's, mm. that's Oh, science? Not science. <laughs> just kidding. Okay, John, actually your film has one big thing in common with my film that I chose. Francis McDormand? Uh, close. Peter Sam D- Rockwell. Oh, mm. I would have gotten there eventually. Yes, you would have. <laughs> um, okay, so the one TIFF premiere that I chose contains many of my favorite things. One, a female director, Jessica Chastain. Obviously, we already mentioned Sam Rockwell, a sympathetic Native American story, horses, and the American frontier. So basically, it's a mashup of all of the ingredients I love to see in a new indie film. Susanna White's Woman Walks Ahead is based on the true story of Catherine Weldon, a 19th century artist who traveled to the Dakota Territory to paint a portrait of Sitting Bull and became so deeply invested in his tribe's plight that she became the confidant, interpreter, and advisor to the Sioux chief. Tiff calls it, quote, an essential alternative take on change in the Old West, one centering on a heroic woman and a great leader who refused to fade quietly into history. I'm looking forward to seeing how White represents the complex dichotomy between Weldon and Sitting Bull's perspectives and life experience. And I think it'll be a really interesting tension. 
Well, in my continuing love affair with Mexican directors, I had to choose Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Tying this whole thing together, it played at both Venice and Telluride to rave reviews. The film is a Cold War fairy tale about a lonely janitor at a U.S. laboratory who falls in love with an amphibious creature captured by the facility. The movie's bad guys played by Michael Shannon, which definitely catches my interest since he seems like some kind of mythical creature himself, given how many films he's in each year. Del Toro told the LA Times that this is his favorite film so far, and that unlike his past films, which mainly emerged from his childhood, he said, quote, Here, I'm talking about me with adult concerns, cinema, love, the idea of otherness being seen as the enemy, what I feel as an immigrant. Sounds like pretty heavy for like a sea creature love story. My runners-up, by the way, are the drama My Days of Mercy, directed by Tali Shalom Ezer and starring Ellen Page and Kate Mara, and One of Us, the new documentary from one of my favorite directing duos, Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. Hey, I didn't know we could have runners-ups. I would have had to also. I did it because I'm the boss. <laughs> yeah, you're out of here, Emily, after this. Don't get <laughs> too attached. <laughs> well, that being said, we still can't have your last show without... Everyone's favorite segment, do, 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 the bottom line. <laughs> the bottom line with Emily Booter. Oh, I'm going to be so sad to never have to adjust the volume levels on that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. Looking at the headlines. That's not yes- a nice way to describe John. <laughs> I'm very skinny. I'm a very skinny person. Oh, actually, when my sister saw you recently, she said you weren't as skinny as when she last saw you. So you've been working out and it's working. Wow. Oh, wow. Better God. keep your sister away from me. <laughs> I thought you were saying he was fat. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, I no, would never like, say that on the up. air. He's nah. up. I'm, I'm jacked now. All right. Cool. Anyway, away from John's body image. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the headlines yesterday, I honestly couldn't tell if I was reading about the Labor Day box office or North Korea. And that's, of course, not to make light of the serious nuclear situation on our hands. It's just that the words, quote, historically awful and, quote, worst in nearly two decades really seem to straddle these two different problems equally. Needless to say, the box office performance this past weekend was dismal. Revenue was down 22 percent from last year. Womp, womp, womp. Unlike North Korea, there could be a logical explanation for this, and that's the fact that there were no new major releases on the holiday marquee this year. This is the first time in 25 years that a movie wasn't released in over 1,000 screens over Labor Day weekend. We don't know why, but we know it's a fact. In 1999, The Sixth Sense alone brought in $29.3 million on Labor Day weekend. And this year, The Hitman's Bodyguard, the best performer, took in a measly piddly diddly 13 million. The top 12 highest grossing releases altogether brought in a combined 51.5 million. But thankfully, it's not all sob stories this week. After all, this is the bottom line, and anything with the word bottom in it deserves some British cheer. First up, Netflix has boosted the film industry in Britain, helping to offset a decline in revenues from domestic production with its commissions, including TV series The Crown and Black Mirror. Overall, Netflix and its international SVOD peers brought in $165 billion worth of work to UK producers in 2016, according to a recent survey. And that's something to celebrate. More stuff to celebrate? The fact that Megan Ellison, otherwise known as America's resident indie fairy godmother, now has access to $350 million in revolving credit for her production company, Annapurna Pictures. 
If you're a financial dum-dum like me and unlike John who sees pies in his eyes, you might like to know that revolving credit is essentially a line of credit where the customer pays a commitment fee and is allowed to use the funds when they are needed. I certainly didn't need to know that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's going to go right in one ear out the other. Ellison has J.P. Morgan, of all banks, to thank for unlocking the funds. David Shaheen, the managing director and head of entertainment for J.P. Morgan's corporate client banking group, said, quote, We are all excited to provide financial support and industry expertise to Annapurna as they continue to build upon their success story. A spokesperson for Annapurna, which just released the Catherine Bigelow film Detroit, said the company would use the funds to expand its film slate and pursue, quote, unquote, new mediums which is obviously a thinly veiled reference to VR. And even more great news. Do you think you can handle it? Do you think you can handle it? Do you think you can handle it? Yeah, I think I, I, think I can. I don't know. I just want pie now. <laughs> well, this great news comes from New York, where we seem to be undergoing an indie film movie theater renaissance of sorts. Film Forum, the renowned West Village institution screening repertory films and new releases, has announced it will be undergoing a massive renovation of its current screens and plans to add a fourth theater into the mix. Now, if you've ever seen a movie at Film Forum, you're probably jumping for joy at this news because the existing theaters are very small, very narrow, and latecomers to screenings are often stuck in the back of the theater where the movie screen looks just about as big as your TV at home and you basically can't see anything. So why did you pay $14? And what a time to be alive as New York has recently seen the birth of Metrograph, the first new indie film theater to open in the city in a decade. And the rebirth of quad cinema, with this Nazi 2001 Space Odyssey-esque aesthetic, and the unveiling of Brooklyn's Alamo Drafthouse, my personal favorite theater in the city, which will soon be joined by a location in Manhattan. And there's more to look forward to. Brooklyn's Pavilion Theater, which has seen better days, has been bought by Nighthawk and will be renovated shortly. That was the shittiest theater ever. I just have to jump in there and say, the Pavilion Theater, I live about three blocks away. And it had bed bugs. Well, it was rumored to have bed bugs, but it was just off. There was like gash, gashes in the seats that were like covered with tape and just like stuffing flying out, sticky substances everywhere. And there can Ew. not be a more exciting movie theater to move in to that space than Nighthawk. Yeah, I'm so jealous you're going to be three blocks away from a Nighthawk now. They have, they're going to put in a dining room that like overlooks the park because it's right across from Prospect Park. And also they've pushed back the renovations on it, uh, or they're saying it's going to take a longer time because they've found some original architecture that they're actually going to restore from oh, the pavilion. Cool. Wow. So they're actually like making their space fit the space uh, that I guess was ignored by the pavilion for all these years. I am so stoked for this place to open up. Well, you can also get stoked about Landmark, which recently announced its plans to build a sprawling new movie theater complex on Manhattan's west side, which includes an eight-screen cinema, an event space, and a private bar. But it likely will not be as cool as Pavilion Theater. So, But I'm happy about that, too, since Landmark Sunshine is also closing in the yes. East Village. Right. So, yeah, a tit yeah. for a tat. Cinema is alive and well in New York, I'm proud to say. And now here's Charles Hain with the gear news for this week. Hello, everybody. So we're going to squeeze in four slightly smaller stories in gear news this week. Uh, first up, Vitek, which is sort of like the megalith no one has heard of. They own sort of everybody, but we all sort of forget about it. Vitek, who owns both Sackler and Vinton, have announced a new tripod, the Flowtech 75. 
and uh, it's going to be coming out under the Vinton and Sackler brands. The key innovation with this design is that it has these unique carbon fiber legs, which have internal adjustments that you can control from the top of the tripod for all of the legs. So usually you have a tripod, you need to adjust the bottom leg, you need to bend over, you need to adjust all legs, you're like bending over and going up and bending over, going up. Here you stay at the top of the head, you've got your buttons to adjust all of your legs from one place. It is also designed to rest more easily on your shoulder, which actually when the camera is super heavy, uh, one of those poles digging into your shoulder is really uncomfortable and having like a smooth outside is very considerate. And um, so take a look. It's just under a thousand bucks for the legs only with no head, which is a little bit pricey for most indie filmmakers. But if you make your living with a tripod day in and day out, the cost and weight savings and not having to bend over savings and comfort could be worth it. Uh, next up, Canon is expanding their line of tilt shift primes with three new lenses, a 50, a 90, and a 135 with the longest offering macro capabilities. Tilt shift has been around for a while and it moves the field of view of your lens, which tilts the depth of field as well. Uh, this can be really helpful if you're using a wide lens to like correct the perspective distortion a wide angle lens might give you to a square building. But in a long lens, it's most useful for tilting the depth of field. Until recently, tilt-shift work was either something you didn't post, or if you wanted to do it on set, you needed to use these fancy tilt-shift adapters. But between this and the Snyder tilt-shift primes, there are now a ton of options for filmmakers who want to do tilt-shift in camera. Next up, we have the world's highest capacity microSD card at 400 gigabytes. This is the tiny microSD card, the kind that goes in like your drone, the kind that you need an adapter to read in your computer. Uh, 400 gigabytes. We're approaching the event horizon where it is legitimately just easier to buy more cards than to worry about more hard drives. Uh, this one comes from SanDisk, and while it's only speed rated for 1080p video, meaning it's not fast enough to handle 4K data rates, it can store a whopping 40 hours of HD video, which would make this great for doc shooters out there. Also, remember 1080p is still the primary delivery format in the universe. Uh, the card goes for the somewhat surprisingly low price of $249.99, which is kind of a deal, I think, for the world's largest microSD card. And then last up, we have the exciting news that Panasonic went kind of all out in their latest firmware upgrade on the GH5. So it's version 2.0 of the firmware, and it includes all new, all intra recording, a 6K anamorphic mode, which can also be used for nearly 5K resolution when working in flat 4x3. For a camera that was like killing it on the spec sheet as it was originally announced, uh, this is a whole host of really cool features, and it's more than we're used to seeing from firmware upgrades. It's out in the field, and early users seem really excited about the resolution they're getting out of the 5K flat mode. That's great news for uh, people who want a cheaper camera, <laughs> like myself. Do you have a GH5? No, I don't have a GH5. I wish. It's great. Do you have a GH5? No, I went Fujifilm X-T2. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I don't know. It's between the GH5, the uh, Sony A-whatever. A7S. At this point, yeah, the A7 or the A9. A9's not as good for video. They're really pushing that for sports. Okay, A7 it is or the GH5. What do you? What's your choice a little bit more than halfway through the year right now? Honestly, that GH5 is so amazing. I went X-T2 for personal reasons that, like, it's still photos I feel like are a little better than the GH5s. Mm -hmm. But if you're, like, thinking about your upcoming short, you're thinking about video, video is your main thing, 
honestly, the GH5, I think, is so hard to beat. It's so good. I love the A7S, and it's really great in low light. After seeing all of the uh, autofocus features in the A9, once those start rolling into the video quality of the A7, I think it'll be more exciting. But mm. for now, I think the GH5 is so good. Well, there you have it. GH5 is winning right now. Okay, so this week for Ask No Film School, we're going to move right along. Sam Frank asks, how can I use my Olympus OM-1's Wiko lenses on my Reflex SR2? I'm familiar with lens adapters and have used my Olympus lenses on Canon cameras before. I'm wondering if anyone knows which adapter would work for this situation. The RE SR2 takes a bayonet type lens, and I'm hoping there's an adapter like this out there. Do you have an answer for Sam, Charles? Yes, I do. And unfortunately, Sam, occasionally we here at Asking the Film School have to deliver bad news. And honestly, though it's hard to prove a negative, we are very very sure that you're never going to find a lens adapter for your SR2 to any other lenses. Well, so what is the SR2? Do you want to give a, a breakdown exactly of what the SR2 Sure. So is? the SR2 is like, was the cool, I guess some people like the 416 better, but the SR platform was Reflex's uh, 16 millimeter and then eventually super 16 millimeter platform. It was super popular with indie filmmakers. It was super popular with documentary filmmakers. It came out in the 70s. It was really badass. The first... Um, the one and the two both used the bayonet mount, which was a evolution of the older RE standard mount. And that is like a pointy kind of mount where there's like a big barrel coming out of the lens. In the late 70s, RE developed PL, and PL is now everywhere. PL owns the market. But the standard mount is the older mount, uh, which was evolved into bayonet. Um, the reason why you can't adapt the SR2 to pretty much any other lens has to do with flange focal distance, which is the distance from the sensor, or in the SR2's case, the film plane, um, to where the lens mount interfaces between the camera and the lens. On the SR2, the bayonet mount has a 52 millimeter flange focal distance. The OM mount is a 46 millimeter flange focal distance, which means the place where the lens is expecting to touch the camera is physically inside the SR2. You'd have to like go at the SR2 with a hatchet and take six millimeters off the front to put the lens in the right place to get focus on the film plane. Maybe not a hatchet, maybe a bandsaw, but still not something anybody wants to do recreationally if you're not making a YouTube video out of it. So the reason why it works with Canon EF mount is that Canon EF mount has a flange focal distance of 44 millimeters. So there's like two millimeters of room which is not very much, but it's enough to put a little adapter at the back of your EM mount, OM mount, and make it work with the EF mount. You've got that little two millimeters of room. But I honestly don't know of, and I couldn't find with a little work, any adapters out there for um, Aries standard mount. Uh, generally, if you want to keep using your SR1 and SR2, you adapt it to PL mount, someplace like Visual Products. Though, honestly, at this point, that's probably not going to be very cost-effective for a camera I can't imagine you're using very much. Um, I even went looking to see if there was, like, a Letus kind of adapter thing you could use to use, like, 35-millimeter PL mount lenses on a standard mount, and I couldn't find anything there. Although, if any users have built something, that would be super cool. Your best bet, if you're super committed to that SR2 and you don't want to commit it to PL, is to buy an old bayonet mount zoom. Visual Products has a few really nice ones under $1,000 that could treat you really well. 
Um, but in terms of adapting things to bayonet mount, unless you take the whole back off the lens and redo some of the optical design, you are probably out of luck. Sorry, Sam. You better stop looking. (laughs) (laughs) The darkest ask no films. (laughs) Thanks, Charles. Here are some movies coming out this week on streaming services and in theaters. On Amazon Prime Instant, you can check out The Magnificent Seven on September 9th. This is, of course, Antoine Fuqua's remake of the classic Western based off Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. For those unfamiliar with the plot, seven gunmen in the Old West gradually come together to help a poor village against savage thieves. It actually opened the Toronto International Film Festival last year, but failed to make a huge splash with critics or audience in its wide release. It's written by True Detective creator Nick Pizzolatto and boasts a very talented cast in Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Peter Sosgard. And hitting Netflix September 8th is the fourth season of BoJack Horseman. BoJack Horseman has been one of Netflix's best-performing and oldest original shows at this point. The cartoon is certainly one for adults and not children, as it deals with the depressing daily ordeals of a failing actor-slash-alcoholic who also happens to be a horse. Did you know that a horse is my third favorite animal behind dogs and dolphins? Yeah, no, I could have gleaned that from your uh, preference for films at the Toronto International Film Festival. Cool. The show's creators are certainly not afraid to be bold or experimental. Their entirely dialogue-free episode, Fish Out of Water, was named the best television episode of 2016 by Time magazine. The year's best episode of television was a standalone escape from harsh reality that proved reality always finds its way to catch you, says Time television critic Daniel Daddario. Underwater, his inability to communicate with anyone is made literal. This episode, thanks to his restricting diving helmet, is practically a silent film, and attempts at forming a nonverbal connection with abandoned seahorse babies he rescues is only a temporary distraction. This episode is dazzlingly beautiful and among the most creative single episodes of TV in memory. It's also a perceptive and painful look at being forced to confront one's regrets. I feel for those dying seahorse babies. Yeah. In a tweet sent out soon after Time's award, co-creator Raphael Bob Waksberg revealed that he fought hard for the episode against Netflix executives. He attaches an email thread that is quite inspiring and worth checking out. We'll link to it in this week's post. Coming to HBO on September 9th is Hidden Figures. Here's another film that was buzzy at TIFF last year that actually, unlike Magnificent Seven, went on to be astronomically successful. That is one good pun. That is a punny pun 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 pun. You might say it's out of this world. While Hidden Figures didn't actually premiere at the festival, Fox brought it along with them to tease some scenes and show off that Pharrell was a producer on the project by having him give a free little concert. Needless to say, Pharrell wasn't the only one who walked away from the film happy. That's another pun. Oh! Do you know why? No, no. Because he's not. Oh, God, of course I wouldn't know that. (laughs) Uh... The film was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards and ended up as one of, if not the most commercially successful films of last year. What was made for a budget of a mere $25 million went on to rake in, whoa, a number I'm not even sure how to read. John, the math guy? <laughs> well, there's nine digits, so that must be $231,342,069. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Anyway... Uh, it made a lot more than it was, <laughs> it made a lot more at the box office than it cost to make, and that is exciting. 
The film, which stars Taraji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer, and Janelle Monet, retells the true story of a team of female African-American mathematicians who served a vital role in NASA during the early years of the U.S. space program, and it is directed by Theodore Melfi. Now for movies coming to theaters this week, the French duo Jean and Luc Dardenn, better known as the Dardenne brothers, have the unknown girl hitting theaters September 8th. They're known for their realist stories of working-class struggle, such as Kid with the Bike and Two Days, One Night, starring Marion Cotillard. Unknown Girl is a humanist procedural about a young doctor named Jenny, played by famous French actress Adèle Hanel, who becomes obsessed with solving the mystery of an unnamed African immigrant who tried to visit her after-hours clinic, only to later turn up dead. Like all of the Dardenne's films, Unknown Girl is a moral fable that wrestles with questions of accountability and social consciousness. It's suspenseful and gripping, and it uses no gimmicks but the stuff of real life. I highly recommend it and saw it at Cannes two years ago. And one of the films I saw back at Sundance is starting its theatrical rollout in New York tomorrow. Motherland is a documentary by Ramona Diaz, who walked away from Park City with the jury award for Commanding Vision. It's truly a cinema verite doc that brings us inside the busiest maternity ward in the world, which is the Fabella Hospital in Manila, Philippines, This place averages 60 births a day, and at its peak, as many as 100 babies within a 24-hour period. Most of its patients are extremely poor, and single beds, believe it or not, are occupied by two or even three pregnant women at a time. Oh my god. Due to lack of resources. It's really a sight to behold, and if you're interested in verite or fly-on-the-wall kind of approach to doc filmmaking, this is a stellar example to watch. There's really no narration or guidance for the audience at all, and when I spoke with Diaz at Sundance, she said that this approach was very intentional. It's so chaotic in the hospital that she felt the best way for audiences to even come close to experiencing it would just be to throw them in there without anyone holding their hands. I plan to put up that interview with Diaz on NoFilmSchool.com this week, so keep your eyes out for it. And now on to some upcoming deadlines and events. The Cinemart co-production market has a deadline on September 15th. If you're looking to get your film seen and possibly financed by the international film community, Cinemart, hosted by the prestigious International Rotterdam Film Festival, is the place to be. Each year, Cinemart chooses about 25 projects to get one-on-one meetings with financiers and distributors. The International Rotterdam Film Festival happens in the Netherlands at the end of January. And a cool short film challenge if you are a young filmmaker who's always dreamed of attending Sundance... The Sundance Ignite Short Film Challenge, with the deadline on September 26th, might be able to send you to the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. That is, if your short film is good enough. Sundance and Adobe Project 1234 are teaming up to award selected filmmakers an all-expenses-paid trip to Sundance, in addition to a year-long mentorship and support from the Sundance Institute. Previous mentors include Effie Brown of Dear White People, producer Jason Berman, and Jeff Orlowski, who directed Chasing Coral. Sundance Ignite Fellows will also receive additional creative and professional development opportunities and a complimentary Adobe Creative Cloud subscription. To apply, you must be between the ages of 18 to 24, and you are required to submit a one to eight minute short film, narrative or documentary, that answers the following question. What stories ignite you? And festival deadlines. We've got some of those for you this week as well. The extended deadline of the Portland Film Festival, or PFF, is September 9th. This takes place in Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Maine. 
from October 30th to November 5th, 2017. And this week-long event is jam-packed with networking, workshops, guest speakers, film premieres, financing talks, director Q&As, and more. It's one of the top 100 reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway and one of Movie Maker's 50 film festivals worth the entry fee. The Omaha Film Festival has their regular deadline on September 11th. The festival takes place in Omaha, Nebraska from March 6th to 11th, 2018. Last year, over $32,000 in prizes were given to winning filmmakers. And in addition, there's a screenplay competition component to the festival. It's one of the top 100 best-reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway. World Cinema Milan has a deadline of September 10th. Ciao. It takes place on November 25th to December 2nd in Milan, Italy. And this is the final deadline, so pack your bags now. Ciao. So now on to weekly words of wisdom. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to this week's interview podcast titled Expect That Everything Will Go Wrong, How to Ensure Your First Short Film is the Best It Can Be, definitely give it a listen because I think it's one of our best and most practical yet. It also has the title of a self-help book, which I kind of appreciate. Really? No, it, it just sounds like it will. Oh. Gotcha. I invited my friend and a great filmmaker, Will Thompson, on the show to discuss what you can do in pre-production to ensure that your short goes as smooth as possible, and he had some great advice. Here's an excerpt from the show, and uh, it's some of the most essential advice that I think that Will had to give on the podcast. So then, what would you say uh, is a way to sort of prepare for those moments in pre-production? I think to expect that everything will go wrong. Okay. I mean, it's totally Murphy's Law. Yeah. That's real. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, things will go wildly wrong. <laughs> and many times I've just been shocked about, like, I can't believe <laughs> that happened. <laughs> or it's like, wow, I mean, that actor was so confident that they were going to show up today. Yeah. Um, or whatever it is. <laughs> and just to kind of have the mindset that, like, it'll be a kind of a bonus if this stuff goes as I expect. Yeah. And if it doesn't, maybe there are some kind of backup ideas um, that could kind of come into play. Um, I mean, definitely one of the biggest enemies that I've always found is just time mm-hmm. on the day. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to to lose track of it. And it's, I mean, obviously you'd want like an AD to be there with you to help you kind of stay on a schedule. Mm-hmm. But that's the biggest thing is you want, you always kind of want a little bit more like, let's just do it again. Like let's, I'm sure we can do it one more time. It'll kind of feel more right to me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, just really thinking about what you need mm. as well um, in advance. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's a shot list or whatever it is um, that you have and you have versions of that where it's like, oh, well, it would be great to get this shot also, but I can make it work without it. Cool. For my weekly words of wisdom, I want to shout out John Byron Hanby of Fractal Visuals, who has done a series of posts for us lately that have a running theme of being organized in every facet of production. It's not necessarily the sexiest topic, but it's so essential to every aspect of our business. The first two articles were about mastering post-production workflow, and the third, published just this week, is about mastering the organization of your gear. In it, John lays out six very practical steps for coming up with an organizational system that anybody with any level of experience on your set can easily understand, which is going to save you lots of time and make sure that none of your kit gets left behind. He even recommends specific cases to consider purchasing, so I won't go over every last detail here, but if you have a production company and your inventory of gear is growing, I highly recommend you read the post, and we will link to that in this week's podcast post. Now, this next part of the show is going to be a little unorthodox, but I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, 
rather than plucking from one article, we asked Emily to sort of compile her compendium of wisdom that she has gained from her last almost two years here at No Film School, interviewing hundreds of filmmakers and, uh, you know, reading dozens of, of words of wisdom and sitting next <laughs> to John Fusco and absorbing his radiation Math genius juicedness <laughs> yeah so um so yeah I'm, I'm really excited to hear what you've come up with Emily throw it at us well it was really hard to distill everything so I will give you the caveat that this is not everything and this maybe not is not even the best it's just some stuff so here you go it's a lot of stuff <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of stuff <laughs> well what do you expect from me the first kernel of wisdom that I was able to distill from my time here is that you should hire strong collaborators and make them your team rather than making them your pawns in your scheme. It's like a rhyme. Charlie McDowell, who did the discovery, said, I have zero interest in controlling actors. I don't like to be over-controlling in terms of my work. I let them explore and go to a place that they're excited about, and if it doesn't feel right or authentic, then I'm there to guide them and help them. But when you're working with these incredible actors, putting a lid on them is the worst thing you can do. When I interviewed Jake Johnson and Joe Swanberg about their micro-budget teamwork across many, many years, they said that the most important thing to them was that they had built a family. They'd brought their team with them from film school all the way to Netflix. Speaking of building, the second kernel of wisdom is if you don't like it, build it. Just ask Bojan Bazelli, a longtime Gore Verbinski collaborator who shot The Ring, among other films. For a cure for wellness, he created a unique format, 166 to 1, with added height from Alexa's open gate, an aspect ratio that did not exist previously in a regular theater. So it had to be accommodated for his movie in particular. Or even better, ask Garrett Brown, who was so fed up with the handheld shaky cam that he locked himself in a hotel room to invent the answer to the cinematic human eye. And that is the steady cam. When I talked to him about his 1975 invention, he said, I was driven by wanting something that didn't exist. I wanted a way to make my handheld shooting stable. Stepping back 40 years, that's the way bloody inventing happens. But in the middle of it, I was just lurching, like something in a pinball machine, from one experiment to another. For a different perspective, you can ask Morgan Spurlock, who'd never seen a genuine horror documentary and wanted to make one himself. Before he created Rats, he asked himself, what if we made a documentary as creepy, as scary, and as weird, and as dark, and uncomfortable as a typical horror film? And he did that indeed. To make all these sleepless nights, Michelle Marksack looked through all the gimbals on the market. He said... None of them were good enough. Either they were too big or too clunky or not balanced enough or the motion was terrible. And at the end of the day, we were like, fuck it, we'll just build our own. So we designed our own gimbal from scratch. It was a combination of a steady cam and a gyroscope. Along those same lines, DP Frankie DeMarco said, quote, nobody to date had ever shot on digital as Super 35 blown up to 300. And he did this for his can premiere this previous year, How to Talk to Girls at Parties. Wow, I love the DIY theme. Another note that I heard over and over again was get great notes in the script stage. I think Hal Hartley said it best. He said, I've always tried to isolate good readers. It's not always useful to give what you're writing to just anyone. You have to develop the skill of finding people who are like you, but not you. Meaning their tastes and sensibilities are generally yours, but they're a different personality, so they'll look at anything a little differently than you would. 
I've got two more words of wisdom for you. The second to last is that you should be obsessed with your story. To hear Richard Kelly, director of Donnie Darko, tell it, quote, I had written a very ambitious script and there were a lot of people who thought I should relinquish control over it. Sometimes you have to fight for your lyricism. Barry Jenkins had a similar sentiment. I gave everything, man. This movie came damn close to killing me. Sometimes this obsession even applies to the long-term career path of filmmaking. As John Nguyen found when he interviewed David Lynch, Nguyen said, when your parents say, hey, you have a kid, you've been working on this film for five years, give up, you need to take care of your family, and you're not a filmmaker, you're just struggling to make a film, most people would just quit. Lucky for us, David Lynch was stubborn and felt like he could never give it up. So many filmmakers give up their dreams because they have to put food on the table. They have to make a living. They get pressured from family and friends to give up the silly filmmaking. David Lynch had that same pressure. Lucky for the world of cinema, he didn't give in to it. And the final piece of advice, which was a little bit harder to come by, but shared by some of the top directors that I was able and fortunate enough to interview throughout my time here, is that you have to be open to mystery. Todd Solent said, you have to have patience with yourself even if you don't have patience. You write a story, and you think it's the story you want to tell. But sometimes with time and distance, you begin to see that the story you're trying to tell is different from what you have on paper. That takes time to figure out. It's always a process of discovery. I think I have a sense of what I'm doing, but I'm always lost and trying to figure it out. This process of filmmaking is what unravels the mystery. Or, as Werner Herzog put it to me at TIFF 2016, quote, The harder you look, the bigger the pile of the unknown becomes. And at Tribeca 2016, Danny DeVito told me, quote, Life, as in filmmaking, is a continuum. It doesn't have to end unless you give up, and you never know what's around the corner. Oh, that's such a fitting note to end on. Although, I, where's the part where you're talking about everything you learned from me? I mean, I know that could <laughs> fill up an entire episode, but like... You just didn't give me enough time to prepare. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, if you had to wing it. No, just kidding. <laughs> anyway, um... Yeah, I mean, this is the part of the show I've definitely been dreading because I don't even know what to say except for thank you for those words of wisdom and also all the wisdom uh, and experience that you've brought to No Film School while you've been here. Um, you've accomplished so much. I feel like you've you know also grown in every way, and um, we're all excited to hear about what you're going to do next. And um, we're just going to miss you so much, and I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. So thank you for everything. Thank you so much. I'm really going to miss you guys and um, and and my experience here, and I'm really sad to be leaving, and I'm going to miss all of you listeners too, even though I don't know a lot of you. <laughs> well, whether we'd like to or not, we have to move on. So on that uh, on that note, I want to give a little plug for next Monday's podcast the interview podcast. It will feature my interview with the director Maya Zinstein, whose film Forever Pure premiered at TIFF last year. The documentary went on to broadcast on Independent Lens on PBS, and it's now available on Netflix. Even though I first saw the film exactly a year ago, it's one that really stands out strongly in my mind because it was so intense. It takes place in Israel, the director's home country, and just like anything else in that place, it's way too complicated to explain in a nutshell. But Long story as short as possible, it's about an extremely popular Israeli soccer team in Jerusalem that's known for its fans' racist tendencies. It was the only team in Israel's Premier League never to sign an Arab player. 
Uh, and in the course of the film, the team gets bought by a Russian oligarch who brings two Muslim players from Chechnya onto the team to serve his own business needs. The resulting backlash exposes the ugliest parts of Israeli society. And my interview with Zinstein is really interesting, particularly in that she went from being a journalist just covering the arrival of the new players on the team to an investigator who received death threats for creating a complex documentary that reveals the skeletons in her own country's closet. The whole thing is intense, and she was really a delight to talk to and a big No Film School fan, which is always fun. So I look forward to sharing that with you all on Monday. In the meantime, for one last sign-off, you can read everything uh, we talked about on this show and more at nofilmschool.com. Of course, we'll have the weekly podcast post with the specific links from this episode. Please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on your favorite app and rate us on iTunes. Of course, only if you're going to give us five stars, which you are because you love the show. So do we. Um, and stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at E.L. Booter on Twitter, and please do stay in touch. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. I just also am going to plug my Kickstarter for the last time because we have one week left, and uh, trust me, it's going to be just as much of a relief to have this over for me <laughs> as it will be for you to stop hearing me talk about it um but that being said we're still pretty far from our goal and it would just really mean a lot to me if you guys at least went and checked it out yo step up no film school community no i mean you guys are being very supportive so far for the most part and i really appreciate it again i can say it because i'm the boss and uh yeah so can we leave a kink uh, a kink starter to my link kink starter <laughs> can we clink to your link yeah so i we'll just leave a, a link to it in this final post and then i'll shut the hell up about it and uh, get off social media forever because... And in case you don't get to the post, that's at Jim underscore John underscore Jim, Jim John Jims, the guy on Kickstarter. Thank you. Bye, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) And we're all, (laughs) except for Emily, at No Film School. Oh, wow. That was harsh. You can find her at... Except for Emily. See you next week. (laughs) (laughs) Love you, mean it. (laughs) Bye. Bye.